This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. Welcome to season two of The Extraordinary Story. We're going to be talking about the beheading of John the Baptist today. In the introduction to season one, I described how this whole project began, this whole project of a years-long search for the meaning of Jesus Christ in my life and the meaning of Jesus Christ, period, began when I was crying in my Honda Civic driving down Interstate 90 in Connecticut. The faith seemed to me to be a waste of time. My prayers seemed unanswered. My experience in the church seemed to be the opposite of what it should be. The world, I said, seemed like a dark maze where we trudge along toward the end with nothing to go on. The wise thing to do seemed to be either to escape from the pain through entertainment, numb the pain through some kind of addiction, or as far as truth goes, at least cultivate an apathy regarding the burning questions that bothered me. Well, this is exactly the situation John the Baptist finds himself in as he is captured by Herod, beheaded for no good reason, simply because Herod is a nasty, superficial man. It's kind of an absurdist, almost nihilistic story, actually. A preacher confidently predicts the imminent victory of God. Not only that, he devotes his life to his God, living a life of fasting, prayer, and discomfort. And what does he get for it? He gets imprisoned and beheaded. Beheaded, which is a particularly kind of anti-human form of execution. How can we understand this as anything but a pathetic tragedy? In fact, the story puts at center stage the question we've been asking all along in the podcast. Who is Jesus? What is the nature of his power? Uh, This is actually a question that both John and Herod Antipas, his killer, are obsessed with in the story that we read today. And as it turns out, I'm obsessed with it too. So let's start by reading the story. There's two versions. There's one in Mark, which is longer oddly enough, since Mark is a short gospel. I'll read the one in Matthew, which will just give the bare details, and then we can fill out what we need as we go along. This is Matthew chapter 14, verse 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. 
So that's the story. And it's a story that doesn't have a whole lot to do directly with Jesus. He barely gets a mention in the end. In fact, it's the only story in the gospel that isn't directly about Jesus. But it is fascinating and it makes one wonder, how the heck did Mark and Matthew know this story to tell it in the first place? Well, the same question arises about the story of Herod the Great interacting with the wise men. How could Matthew and Mark possibly know what happened when Herod met with the Magi? Or how could they possibly know what happened at a dinner party in Herod's house? The answer is actually in what we've already seen. And it's a kind of a cool little coincidence, maybe I guess not a coincidence, that in a separate gospel, in Luke's gospel, we had learned that Joanna, the wife of one of Herod's stewards, was a follower of Jesus. So her husband must have witnessed all the intrigue of Herod the Great and his son Herod Antipas. There's also an early Christian named Menahin who was a lifelong friend of Herod Antipas. But to further understand this story, we have to understand first who Herod is. It's important to note this is not the same Herod who we heard about in the Christmas story. That was the brutal King Herod the Great, of whom Caesar said, it's safer to be a pig than a son in his house. That was kind of a double dig at Herod. On the one hand, it refers to Herod's refusal to eat pork because of his Jewish heritage. And on the other, it refers to the brutality we talked about in the massacre of the innocent story. So it's kind of a dig at his Jewishness and a dig at his brutality. That earlier Herod, King Herod the Great, ruled all of Judea, but he is kind of like politicians today in that the people probably didn't like him much, but probably appreciated some of what he did. He helped restore part of the temple and did some things that Jewish people would have cheered. When he died, his kingdom was split into four, and his son, Herod Antipas, ruled in Galilee and the disconnected territory of Perea to the east of Jerusalem. He was called Herod the Tetrarch and was so named because he was in charge of a fourth of his father's kingdom, which is what Tetrarch means. So let's get the family line straight here. First was Herod the Great, the evil king in the Christmas story. He had a number of wives and children, but we're only concerned with the two relevant ones named Herod here. First is Herod the Second. We'll call him Herod the Reject because his dad, before he died, took him out of the line of succession. He's the guy who first married Herodias and fathered Salome, the dancer. Next was Herod the Tetrarch, which means he was in charge of a fourth of his dad's kingdom, which was split up when Herod the Great died. We'll call him Herod Antipas because, well, that's his name. The gospel calls him King Herod, but Antipas got in trouble from Caesar for calling himself a king. Herod Antipas is the bad guy in the Passion story when Christ is killed, but he's also the bad guy in today's story. He was the one who divorced his wife and married the wife of Herod the Reject and was so taken by the dance of his stepdaughter that he promised her up to half of his kingdom is how it's put in Mark. You can see how his wife Herodias is positioned in this story as the femme fatale. Mark's gospel goes into more detail, reporting that Herodias had a grudge against John and wanted to have John killed, but she could not get at him for, quote, Herod feared John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe, end quote. She started out married to the wrong son, Herod the Reject, and you get the impression that maybe 
she had something to do with the fact that she got rid of the powerless brother and ended up with the powerful brother. She also seems to have taught her daughter Salome to use sexuality in the way she did. Following other depictions, including Oscar Wilde's play Salome, Franco Zeffirelli's Jesus in Nazareth miniseries shows Salome dancing in a suggestive way that inflames the passions of her uncle and stepdad and then wickedly asks for the head of John the Baptist, who has been down in the dungeon spouting prophecy just before the scene began. But we can't let Herod Antipas off the hook, as if he were merely a victim of wicked women in his life. He's like Macbeth, perhaps, egged on by his wife, but at the same time undeniably at fault. Jesus later calls Herod that fox, and you get the impression of a clever, immoral man who is a killer like his dad, only he's sneaky about it. But we also learn that he is intrigued by Jesus. He is thus one of a number of people who will will meet in the Gospels who are intrigued and interested in Jesus, but never let his words change their behavior. This will include Pontius Pilate, who will also be intrigued by Jesus, but swayed by the crowd. It also includes St. Peter, who will deny Jesus on the night of his death because he's afraid of a servant girl. Unless we feel too high and mighty about it, we can probably put ourselves in that category too. I remember recently I was listening to the Bible in a Year podcast with Father Mike Schmitz at a gas station. I had it playing in the car, so I opened the windows so I could hear it while I pumped gas. But then another car drove up and I quickly silenced it. Uh, And I wondered, wait, did I do that because I'm afraid some random stranger is going to think that I'm a kind of guy who listens to the Bible? I don't know. But anyway, we all can fall into this trap. But that's what Herod Antipas was. He listened to John, but wanted to keep that part of his life secret. And he was too committed to his life of piddly one quarter power and piddly sexual excitement at watching a girl dance that he cut himself off from the grand story of God's redemption that was happening in his midst and calling out to him just like it called out to his friend Manahin, who became a Christian. Herod Antipas was also like David in the story of David and Bathsheba. David was a king who indulged his lust watching a woman bathe, and that grew and grew. And this is what happens in our time with pornography. What feels like a little sin of indulging our eye soon grows to take over more and more of our lives, moves us in a direction opposite of the fundamental good that we want in our lives. The popularity of pornography has led to the popularity of human trafficking in small ways through the unauthorized videos that are used on porn sites, but in larger ways to actual human trafficking or you know, more traditionally understood human trafficking that caters to men inflamed by the, these passions. And pornography at any rate leads to the kind of emotionally crippling of young men and women all across the world now. So Jesus was right in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be filled with light. But if your eyes are bad, the whole body will be filled with darkness. And if the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Well, we see how great that darkness is in the case of Herod and John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist was the very opposite of Herod, the very opposite of those of us who hide what we believe and keep it private to keep from being embarrassed. He let everybody know what he believed. 
He loudly denounced Herod's unlawful marriage of his second wife, even though this was a family that was all about unlawful marriages, so it was hardly a novel thing to point out. I'll talk later about what exactly this achieved for John, or didn't achieve, actually. But for now, let's notice that John the Baptist is the kind of guy every ruler needs. In the story, the emperor has no clothes. The emperor is told that he has been given fine garments by a magical tailor and that only fools would deny it. He walks out naked and no one is willing to tell him that he's naked except for a little boy. In this example, John the Baptist is like the little boy who's willing to point out the sin of the king. Too many of us are not willing to point out that our leaders are naked. If they happen to be leaders of the political party we prefer or leaders who give us something that we want. Anyway, Mark's version of this story is all about the identity of Jesus. The Gospel of Mark can be summarized as a mystery man arrives on the scene doing marvels and speaking marvelous truths. No one knows who he is until he finally tells them, then they kill him. This gospel puts this question of Jesus' identity at center stage in Mark's gospel and for us in this podcast. It begins by saying in Mark, Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the baptizer has been raised from the dead. Others said it is Elijah. It is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when King Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. End quote. Well, that's fascinating. It gives us a lot of key information. First, it tells us that the idea of a resurrection was in the air. People were looking for a great man like John the Baptist to rise from the dead. Some might take this for evidence against Jesus' resurrection because it seems to say that there's a high degree of expectation slash gullibility in the air and people are ready to see somebody rising from the dead. But you can also make the case that it provides some evidence for the resurrection, because after John's death, no one mounted a serious claim that he was raised from the dead, and even though he was killed as a prisoner like Jesus, his body was found and his relics were saved and venerated. It also shows that people thought there were no prophets anymore. Some said Jesus was a prophet like the prophets of old, not the latest prophet, but a return to the line of prophets that apparently they thought was no longer a thing. At any rate, Herod doubts Jesus and so do the people, which is a great time to mention another gospel about John that comes up at this point in the gospel story. Three chapters earlier in Matthew, we get another insight into what John the Baptist's life in prison was like. When John the Baptist heard in prison the works of Christ, he sent his disciples to Jesus with this question, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? Jesus said to them in reply, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind regain their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news proclaimed to them, and blessed is the one who takes no offense at me. It's important to realize what it means to be in prison in the ancient world. John wasn't in an airy jail cell with a cot. He was most likely in something like a dungeon, sleeping on the floor with the rats and bugs. It's true that prisoners had occasional access to people they knew and loved, probably to help provide for their sustenance and to help serve as a warning to others. 
But as Pope Benedict XVI pointed out, the greatest deprivation of the prisoner back then was the lack of light. Above-ground habitation spaces weren't wasted on prisoners, nor were lanterns or torches. So think of the contrast in where we see John in prison and where he started out. He was the desert dweller who slept under the stars. Now he's the dungeon dweller who sleeps underground. He was the commanding voice of prophecy. Now he's sending a question of doubt via messengers. He was the denouncer of those in power. Now he's the detainee of those in power. He was the man who announced that Jesus would come with an axe to cut down the trees of the fruitless and a winnowing fan to clear the threshing floor of the superficial and wicked. But now he's facing the fact that the wicked are still firmly in place and he's the only one who's been cleared away. And there's only one person facing an axe and that's John himself whose head will be chopped off at the order of this superficial wicked man. So is that true? Is the voice crying out in the desert now a whispered doubt crouching in the darkness? Not necessarily. The fathers of the church insist that John's question is not for his own sake, but for the sake of his disciples. Remember a few episodes back in Mark chapter 3, when Jesus' family thought Jesus had gone crazy. Mary brings them in their doubts directly to Jesus. Here, John follows the same plan. He directs those who doubt Jesus to go and ask Jesus for themselves. This is good advice for us, too. If you doubt Jesus, go ask him. Heck, if you doubt Jesus, challenge him. He promised you faith, hope, and love at baptism. And he's Almighty God, so surely he can deliver faith, hope, and love to his adopted children who ask him for it. But we could forgive John if he really did doubt, question himself, if he really did wonder, wait, what happened? Where's this triumph that I was promised? In fact, you can see the whole thing as an example of the kind of struggle every follower of Christ has to go through, and every Jewish seeker too, for that matter. It's the struggle of Jacob wrestling through the night with the angel, the struggle of Job beaten down, lashing out at God himself. It's the story of St. John of the Cross's Dark Night of the Soul and the experience shared by St. Therese of Lisieux and Mother Teresa of feeling the absence of God in their lives. It's also the experience of Jesus Christ himself on the cross, crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't think my experience has risen to the level of any of theirs, but as I said in the introduction, this is the kind of experience that was the impetus for this whole podcast. And what I've learned is what Bennington College professor Matt Ramage says he learned. In his book, The Faith Experiment, he says he learned that faith is not a grasping of truth, but being grasped by truth. Faith doesn't mean understanding everything. It means trusting through the experience of doubt. Faith doesn't mean shouting the answers from the side of the Jordan River. It means seeking the answers, even though you're trapped in a dungeon. At any rate, I think we can forgive John if he really did wonder what the heck was going on. The answer Jesus gives him is something I've only recently in my life come to understand more deeply. I have always understood the first part of what Jesus says. Uh, the blind regain their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, etc. He's saying that the prophecies of Isaiah have been fulfilled. Isaiah said, the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be cleared, 
Then will the lame leap like a stag, and the tongue of the mute will sing. But Jews knew that this promise of God in the Messiah also entailed that God would come with vindication to save you, and that the Lord in his salvation secures justice for the oppressed, thwarts the way of the wicked, and sets captives free. Well, here is John, unvindicated, unsaved, unfree, oppressed and thwarted by the wicked. So what's going on here? We will soon hear what is going on here. We'll hear Jesus's parables about the kingdom that follow his parable about the sower, which we've already talked about. The kingdom of God will come with vindication as surely as seeds sown in the ground grow into fields and forests, but it will also come slowly as surely as seeds sown in the ground take a long time to become fields and forests. Those who hope in the kingdom of God have to trust and wait. They have to be patient. And so the real virtue of John the Baptist and the real virtue we all need in the kingdom of God isn't power, but patience. That's a really hard virtue to have and a really hard message to take. But patience isn't the doormat virtue of those who tolerate evil and pretend everything is okay when it is far from okay. Instead, Patience is the stand-tall virtue of those whose faith in God is unshakable and whose trust in Him is irreversible. I recently heard a talk at Notre Dame about Church Father Tertullian's high view of patience. He sees impatience as at the heart of the original sin and patience as the key to happiness and holiness. Eve would never have sinned at all if she had honored the divine edict by maintaining her patience to the end, he wrote. He adds, as God is the author of patience, so the devil is of impatience, end quote. So Satan played on Eve's impatience, suggesting she could become like God now, not waiting for divinization God's way. God glories in being in the very act of existence, like a farmer who cherishes each stage in the crop from seedling to harvest. Tertullian's essay helped me understand why Moses' sin of striking the rock was so terrible that it kept him from entering the promised land. The Lord told Moses to command a rock to pour forth water to quench the people's thirst in the desert. Moses did, but he struck the rock twice as if to say, hop to it, God. Instead of conforming himself to reality, which belongs to God, Moses tried to conform God to the reality he wanted. Like Adam and Eve, his actions tried to dethrone God and enthrone himself, subverting God to his desires and his timetable instead of the other way around. Well, that's exactly what the good news is. The good news is that patience pays off. Notice Jesus doesn't say, go and tell John what you see. The poor are no longer poor. No, he tells them, go and tell John what you see. The poor have the gospel preached to them. So hope proved by patience is the good news that's proclaimed to the poor. I used to think our relationship with God means that he comes to heal our suffering and give us what we need so that we can strengthen others in a hard world. Now I realize that our relationship with God strengthens our hearts to suffer and serve and wait along with other sufferers in a hard world. The ones who are closest to God aren't those who are talented, healthy, and materially well off and thank God for it. The ones closest to God are those who are feeble, weak, and are pretty sure more bad things are coming, but trust God with them. 
God helps the blind see and the lame move forward despite our brokenness. The good news isn't a celebration for the triumphant, it's encouragement for the weak. In Isaiah, the Lord is talking to us when he says, Strengthen the hands that are feeble, make firm the knees that are weak, say to those whose hearts are frightened, Be strong, fear not. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Some of us have been beaten down by life and keep going, maybe with a lot less zeal than we had before. Some of us have been so beaten down we can barely function and have basically checked out. In either case, we are the people whose patience Jesus wants to reward. Those of us who are in the dungeon of our addictions, our shortcomings, oppressed by foes within and without, our swagger gone, replaced by whispered doubts and broken questions. We are the ones who have finally learned patience because the only alternative is despair. We are the ones who can rejoice at the good news even while our life circumstances are objectively bad news. Anyway, this brings up another point I think this story makes. The story of John the Baptist shows how important it is to stand up in political fights, but it also shows exactly what result we can expect from standing up in political fights. I wrote about the beheading of John the Baptist shortly before the fight over the definition of marriage was definitively lost by Christians in America. One prominent Catholic, Jody Bottom, who is editor of First Things, pointed out that the fight for marriage is a losing proposition for the church. A lot of people feel that way. They think Christians who want to insist that marriage is just between a man and a woman are joining a hopeless cause. That ship has sailed. All we are doing by arguing for traditional marriage is making people mad, making ourselves look out of touch with no hope of changing anything. It just makes the church look bad and leaves a bad taste in everybody's mouth. I probably agree with all of that. I much prefer arguing don't abort people in the abortion debate than don't marry people in the marriage debate. And I'm pretty sure we're not going to suddenly convince everyone that gay marriage is a non-starter and we should start over. Besides, I understand and feel for homosexual people. I really do. I love them. I want what's best for them. I don't hate them. I don't want bad things for them. But I get why John the Baptist died for marriage. Because marriage is fundamental. It's the institution that says potential parents deserve a special status. In the normal course of events, heterosexual couples who live together in love will beget the next generation. We want them to raise the next generation too, together. So potential parents need special protections, special encouragement, special help, special status. To give these potential parents a special status is better for all of us, whether we are same-sex attracted, opposite-sex attracted, or not attracted to sex at all, because married couples bear the next generation, rear the next generation, and children make them do counterintuitive things, focusing more on the future than they do on the present, making the world better for everyone. That's why marriage is the fundamental relationship on which our society is built. Will our saying that heterosexual marriage is unique and precious make the church look bad and leave people feeling disenchanted? I don't know. I guess so. But I'm pretty sure that doesn't matter. John the Baptist was beheaded for defending marriage. My friend, family activist Peter Wolfgang, says John the Baptist should be the patron for defending marriage. I agree. But why? Is he the patron saint 
for fighting for marriage because he won? No, he didn't win. Divorce and remarriage have only gotten worse and more widespread than they were then. Or is it because he made public pronouncements about Herod that everyone else should have done but didn't? No, Jesus didn't join John in the effort to publicly denounce Herod's marriage, for instance. So did the martyr for marriage do something ineffective and unnecessary? I don't know. How about the other marriage martyr, St. Thomas More, who opposed King Henry VIII's divorce and remarriage? How did Thomas More's opposition to divorce in England work out? By winning the marriage fight? Reversing the tide? No. His death was a blip on the march for divorce, just like John the Baptist's death. They both lost their heads to oppose divorce, but today, divorce is more popular than ever, and even some powerful people in the church seem willing to accept it. But both their deaths loom large in the march of the faith. So, would it have been fine if John the Baptist and Thomas More were to stand down and not die for a losing battle that did nothing to change the course of politics? I'll say it again, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. Uh, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't matter. Maybe defending marriage has always been a losing cause politically, but it has always also been the fundamental building block of society. And maybe there are things worth losing for. As a Catholic, I've spent my whole life fighting losing battles over fundamental things. Fighting abortion, fighting poverty, arguing against every war, fighting for religious freedom. Heck, I even promote natural family planning and point out all the evils contraception has caused. Maybe critics are right and defending marriage is an utterly lost cause in the 21st century and to defend it is to look like a jerk-faced loser. Well, it hurts to put it that way, but I've been a jerk-faced loser politically for way too long to try to save face now. Or maybe the opposite is true and our witness will change the culture after all. It wouldn't be the first time God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, as St. Paul put it. Or the last. So I say, John the Baptist, saint of the losing cause of marriage, pray for us. And St. Thomas More, saint of the hopeless defense of marriage, pray for us. Give us the grace to lose big for marriage like you did. Remember, John the Baptist's disciples had asked, is he the one or should we wait for another? That gospel continues with Jesus's final definitive take on John the Baptist. As they were going off, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? Someone dressed in fine clothing? Those who wear fine clothing are in royal palaces. Then why did you go out? To see a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Amen, I say to you, among those born of women, there has been none greater than John the Baptist. Yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. End quote. In the third chapter of the Gospel of John, John's disciples complained about Jesus, and John told them, You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. He must become greater, I must become less. 
So earlier, John called himself the best man of Jesus. Here, Jesus says that his best man was greater than every prophet who ever lived, but that each of us in the kingdom of God will be greater than John the Baptist. Think of how true that is. For all the prophets before John, it was always Advent, but never Christmas. They were born into a Christless world, prayed all their lives for Christ to come, and then died in a Christless world. They sang, O come, O come, Emmanuel, but never got to sing, O come, all you faithful. John was blessed more than them because he sang both. But we are blessed more than John. John died without ever seeing Jesus on the cross, but we see our redemption reenacted at every mass. John died without ever seeing Jesus risen from the dead, but we celebrate the resurrection each Sunday. John died without ever seeing Pentecost transform Mary and the apostles and his promised baptism of the Holy Spirit happen. But we all receive the Holy Spirit at our baptism and at confirmation. John died without seeing the gigantic growth of the church, but we have seen the Christian revolution of love transform the morality of the world for two millennia. John believed, trusted, and loved anyway. Our patience should surpass even his as we wait out whatever comes our way in our life, knowing that it is all part of Jesus Christ's extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America through our mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Help us tell others about the extraordinary story. Visit us at benedictine.edu.